Welcome back to Essential Viewing. I'm Cole Beelan. This week, I had the guys watch Mishima, A Life in Four Chapters, the 1985 film directed by Paul Schrader and starring Ken Ogata as the titular Yukio Mishima. If you listened to last week's episode, you know we have a special guest joining us today, Leon Din, a longtime friend of the podcast who brought some excellent points to the discussion. If you'd like to watch along with us, next week, Bryce is having us watch Citizen Kane, the 1941 epic drama directed, produced, and starring Orson Welles, along with Joseph Cotton and Dorothy Comingor. Don't forget to follow us on Letterboxd and check out our Instagram at essential underscore viewing. We hope you enjoy the episode. All right, and welcome back, everyone, to another exciting episode of Essential Viewing. I'm Cole Beal, and I'm joined today by Christian Cuevas, Bryce Kramer, and we have a special guest joining us today. Our special guest, would you like to uh, introduce yourself? Hi, everyone. I'm Leon Din. Cool. Thanks for being here today, Leon. Um, we're really excited to have you and have you here to discuss Mishima, A Life in Four Chapters, the 1985 film directed and written by Paul Schrader. Uh, I don't want to say a fan favorite or a favorite to the podcast, but he is. this is the second time we've watched and discussed a Schrader film, I believe. Um, correct me if I'm wrong. But anyway, Leon, I wanted to start out by asking, you know, why why do you think I asked you to be on this episode <laughs> to discuss Mishima? And could you kind of tell us your your experience with with Mishima and, and like kind of his his uh, written work briefly? Yeah, so I guess I've I first encountered Mishima a few years ago. I think uh, Chris on the podcast here uh, introduced me. And since then, I've read several of his books. Um, I think typically you know, his books deal with themes of like death, um, beauty, and it's, uh, they've been something that have definitely stuck with me. Um, cool. Yeah. I, I'll, I'll just give a little bit of background as well. I think Chris was also the person that turned me on to the books. Um, first, I first read, um, Spring Snow, which is the, the first entry in the Sea of Fertility trilogy that kind of, I think Misha is probably most well known for, and then continued on through the rest of that that tetralogy, and then I've read a, a handful or a small handful of his other novels. And um, have, yeah, and, and I don't read, so I'm the odd one out here. <laughs> yeah, I don't I don't have any prior experience with Mishima before reading the before watching this movie. Besides, you know, reading like an article online. Um, okay. Yeah, and I think that'll be very interesting for discussion later on, Bryce, because you're kind of going to be a foil to me and Leon and Chris in our discussion. <laughs> um, Chris, you want to go? Yeah. Um, I I was re. I stumbled upon Mishima many years ago. Um, I was reading an article about like how to get your shit together. <laughs> like, <laughs> like it was one of those like medium articles, like about like just how to like, I don't know, develop good habits or something. And the person in the article was talking about similar ideas of like unifying thought and action and such. And then down in the comments section of this article, someone mentioned the book, uh, the temple of the golden pavilion. So I was like, huh, that, that sounds kind of interesting. So I got it, and then I read it, and I was like, wow, this is pretty great. Mm. So then I read, you know, all of, many of his other books, four or more of his books. Um, and, you know, he's since become one of my favorite authors. Uh, so, yeah, that's kind of how I got into yeah. reading Mishima. In that Medium article, did they reference, like, Tim Ferriss and the four-hour work week at all? <laughs> <laughs> no. Oh, no. <laughs> I, I figure that sounds like it'd be, you know, like, ripe for the, yeah. the discussion there. Pretty intense way of getting your shit together. Yeah, yeah, for sure. 
Um, but anyway, before we get into discussion about Mishima and the film, let's uh, go to the Essential Viewing Roundtable. So, Bryce, do you want to give us a recap of you know what you watched this week, all, all manner of media you've consumed? Yeah, so I haven't watched any other movies this week. Um, mainly because I was too busy watching TV. I watched the entirety of the, the Book of Boba Fett over on Disney+. Plus. Oh, man. Um, it was, it's kind of weird because the first half of the show is essentially like the Boba Fett show, and he's like becoming like the new crime lord on Tatooine. It's pretty cool. Um, and then the second half like becomes um, essentially like season two and a half of The Mandalorian. Um, hmm. <laughs> but I really like The Mandalorian, so I wasn't too upset that that happened. Um, but the show was a great time. A lot of the episodes are actually directed by um, Robert Rodriguez. Mm. Oh, that's cool. You guys might be familiar with. So, like, Danny Trejo, like, they makes a little cameo appearance um, in one episode. But um, it's just a really great time. I, I've been loving these Star Wars shows over on Disney Plus because they really, like, capture the original kind of, like, Western and, like, samurai influences the original Star Wars movies had back in the day. But they kind of, like, dial it up to 11 in terms of, like, samurai duels and, like, gunslinging, like, showdowns in the middle of, like, barren streets. Like, they kind of capture that that feeling really well so it's it's a far cry away from the um the, the recent star wars movies that have been coming out that that haven't been so hot but these <laughs> these shows i've been thoroughly enjoying i definitely recommend um getting into them if you haven't already nice yeah, that, that's oh and and one other funny thing cole might appreciate is that um uh boba fett has like a droid helping him out and it's voiced by um, matt barry from what we do in the shadows oh really <laughs> Yeah, that's good. So that, yeah. Was, that was enjoyable. But um, Matt Berry's yeah, great. Good show. And I also want to highlight, um, they do a really good job like um, sticking with practical effects for the most parts in these. Like everything feels very like tactile and real in terms of like costuming, prosthetics, sets. Um, there are special effects like, you know, when there's no other option. But for the most part, they feel very like grounded and real, except for the very rare like big stakes, kind of big scale moments that happen. So Hmm. It, they're just they're, they're really well done okay cool chris yeah so just one movie for me uh last night the dolby cinema Times square to see uh kenneth Branagh's uh death on the nile his sequel to his um adaptation of murder on the orient express I you were gonna came say out. belfast <laughs> ah, no <laughs> not, not yet um but yeah the sequel to his murder on the orient express that came out uh like four or five years ago I really enjoyed it. You know, I like I like a movie that kind of rewards like, you know, uh, participation in the form of like paying very close attention to like the fine details. You know, it's a good it's a good mystery. I mean, very nice cast. Kenneth Branagh is like amazing as uh, the the star. Uh, Hercule Poirot. <laughs> um, that was pretty good for like Belgian French. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh uh, yeah, a little, a little bit, you know, here and there. <laughs> Dabbles. Here and here and there, you know. Chris brings the uh, je ne sais quoi to the podcast. <laughs> but um yeah, it's a good time, you know. I mean, it wasn't I, I thought the ending was a bit weak, but it's it's a it's a it's a great watch. Um I mean the ending's pretty lame, right? The river the river did it, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I don't wanna talk spoil too much about it, but it, it's a good time, especially if you if you like the first one, then you definitely would like this this, yeah. this follow up. I didn't see Murder on the Orient Express, but like I saw the trailer for Death on the Nile enough times in the theater that I think I eventually was like, eh, I'll go see that. <laughs> yeah. No, it's good. It's it's definitely worth a watch. 
one thing I want to say about it is that uh, it's got um, it's my first experience seeing like a canceled person in a movie. <laughs> oh, with um, Army Hammer. With Army Hammer, and he's not like a su- side character; like he's in it, in it. And I like mean, this is something that like they like made this before. Yes, all that exactly. Stuff about him being a yeah. freak. <laughs> and there's a lot of scenes. There's a lot of scenes like dancing scenes that involve him, and it's got some of the like freakiest dancing i've ever seen in a movie like there this is like going beyond like bumping and grinding oh <laughs> so damn like, like that kind of freaky yeah like it was like some of the strangest dancing i've seen on screen in a movie before and it, it all centers around him with like the various women of the movie so like some it was kind of a trip like some of the scenes in the movie like just with the context of army hammer which i won't get into all the details of that but like it, it was weird okay oh man um i'll just leave it at that but yeah, that's all I watched this week. Uh, Leon, would you like to contribute to the roundtable? For sure, yeah. So two things come to mind. Um, I haven't really seen any movies recently, but I did watch an episode of Atlanta, uh, just like the oh. first episode. Oh, nice. Yeah, honestly, like really surreal. Um, like it's sort of comedic, but there's like no laugh track. And yeah. it's just like, it's a very strange show. Um, and like, given the first episode i didn't know that there was like this whole magical component to the setting as well so it was really strange when during the episode this uh like magician guy just like showed up on the bus and started like (laughs) saying fortunes and that sort of thing like very weird um is the first episode the one that ends with like the invisible car somebody driving away in it no um so in this Uh. one he he entire crew end up in jail or something by the end by the end of the episode they like shoot a guy there's a whole like uh the the first episode starts with them shooting the guy then it like jumps back in time and it's everything that leads up till that point so it like circles back okay yeah i i I went back and watched one episode i think from season one where it's like themed around like a talk show and the whole episode they have like fake commercials and everything involved Definitely stick with it. Yeah, Atlanta's great. There's even more stranger stuff than in those first couple ones as you keep going. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I'll definitely stick with it. Um, yeah, the other thing that comes to mind is I've been watching Attack on Titan as it's come mm. out every week. And I have to say, I think it may go down as one of the best anime of all time. But, you know, oh, we'll wow. see. Strong I, words. Yeah. Yeah. I've seen like a decent amount of anime. But um, we'll see, like, how it lands, because I think that makes a big difference. But so far, I think the show has done such a good job of starting off with this initial, very simple premise and expanding on it every season. It does it in a, w- in a way that doesn't get old, but also, like, still ties into the original themes of the mm. show as well. Do you, do you think they're going to Game of Thrones it, or do you think they're going to pull it off? I think they'll stick the landing. Um, okay. Yeah. You heard it here first. <laughs> Leon, you got to finish uh, Evangelion before you start making your, your top five of all time lists. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, that's that's on the list still. Um, I started that at your recommendation. and But, man, like, Shinji is such an annoying character. <laughs> like, I, I don't know. Um, and, you know, it's an older show. So I think I was, like, five or six episodes in. It was, like hard to deal with just like the bog standard like tropes of the show and like <laughs> you know, it's it is a little bit slower paced um, yeah mm. is, that, is that all you had leon <laughs> yep 
All right. Cool. So my, my roundtable is pretty brief this week. I'll start off by saying I've been watching a lot of It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. Um, I think I mentioned a couple of weeks ago that I, I they uh, the cast and crew of the pod uh, have formed a podcast um, hmm. uh, based on the show where they watch one episode a week and then they like talk about it. And like they talk a lot actually about production and like kind of the way that they went about producing the show for each episode, which is kind of a, a cool um, thing if you're interested in that side of like how to make like, you know, comedic like kind of short form uh, TV shows. And then um, so I've been watching It's Always Sunny. Uh Notable episode I watched, I think, last night was Charlie McDennis 2 Electric Boogaloo, <laughs> which I'm sure, I, Leanne, I don't know if you've watched It's Always Sunny at all. I know Chris hasn't. Um, but um, yeah, Danny DeVito is just like a delight. Like, he fits so well with that show, and I'm really glad that he's still making it with them, like, even though they're in season 15 now. And it's kind of amazing that they're, they're still able to do like fresh stuff every season that isn't. And it, and it hasn't like gotten worn out yet. It's kind of amazing. It's nice because like at this point they don't necessarily like have a new season every year. They're kind of just like once they have enough ideas together, then they decide to group up and make the episodes. Yeah. Anyway, the only movie I watched this week besides Mishima was the 2002 um, live action Scooby Doo movie. Ah, nice. <laughs> One of the all time greats. Which yeah. I hate that That's movie. That's a fan favorite movie. Yes. Which which Bryce has like notoriously despised, and we've talked about this. I think off mic, it it like holds they made up. Made Scrappy do the villain. That's yeah, because he, he sucks. He's a terrible character. Um, no, but it was it was a good time. Like it was kind of just like on a whim. Like we were just sitting, we're like, oh, what should we watch on? And it was on Netflix. So if you want to watch it, it's on Netflix. It's like an hour and twenty five minutes, so it's really short. Um, but like just a couple things. Uh, CG does not hold up very well, but like the, the the movie is good. Like it it's it's fun. Like getting to see these characters, it was definitely a nostalgia trip for me because I watched that movie a lot as a kid. Um, but one thing I I did not realize was that there are like a surprising number of like weed jokes in the movie because like yeah. the whole thing with with like the early Scooby Doo is that they're kind of like or at least Shaggy and Scooby are supposed to be like stoner characters. They like drive around in this van solving mysteries. But like there were like a couple shots where they are like are definitely implying that they're like smoking weed or something, and then it cuts and they're like inside their van, but it's they're like grilling inside the van, and that's what the smoke is coming out. Um, so being an adult now, like kind of seeing those, I, I definitely enjoyed it um, quite a bit. Also, that that movie has like a lot of like music in it that I remembered very fondly, and I don't know if it's actually any good, but it's just like there's a lot of music in that movie that I. I was like, oh, this is this is fun. Like I, I don't know if I listened to it uh, outside of the film, but it's it's fun that it's there. Um, but yeah, go check that out. I may watch Monsters Unleashed afterward because oh, I mean, that was even worse. That's the natural thing. <laughs> I or I might go back and just watch some of the old like Hanna Barbera Scooby Doo because I watched a it's lot on of that HBO. As a kid. Yeah, and that that that's like really good stuff. So is the first one, the one with the body switching, or is that the second? one? Yes, that's the. There, there is a weird body switching thing where uh, <laughs> Freddie Prince Jr. and Sarah Michelle Gellar like switch bodies, and they're talking about how um, like or Fred Freddie Prince Jr. is gonna like look at himself naked, which is kind of weird. It, it, they make it like a little bit adult, which was or like playing to you know not just kids. They destroyed the innocence of the original <laughs> cartoons. No, those those <laughs> movies are classic. Classics. Those movies they're, are classics. Yeah, they're they're pretty good. Um, 
Anyway, so that was that was the roundtable for this week. Um, now it's time to get into the meat of this episode, discussing Mishima: A Life in Four Chapters. And for our uh, brief synopsis, I wanted to kick it over to Chris. Actually, could you give us a, a quick synopsis of this film? <sighs> oh man, here we go. Uh, the, the life and times of Yukio Mishima uh, intertwined with critical moments from uh, some of his most iconic novels, in order to illustrate the the intense kind of emotional arc of this man's life um you know this is someone who who lived with with much passion and and conviction and um you know i think the movie really is trying to capture his like mindset um more than anything it's hard to synopsize because it it floats from you know real events from his life his childhood you know his his um his uh, uh, what's what's the word I'm looking for? Um, avoiding avoiding his uh, avoiding uh, the war, you know, avoiding World mm-hmm. War Two. Um, to his adulthood, you know, his success as a as a famous writer, you know, the foremost writer in Japan of his time. Um, you know, his foray into into film, you know, and you know, eventually uh, his his kind of lifelong quest to unify. Art and action, the pen and the sword, um, which is what takes him to this basically act of terrorism that he commits at the end of his life, um, where he takes uh, he he and his like acolytes storm a military base and take uh, a general hostage in order to to try and give him a platform to speak to uh, you know not just the soldiers on the space but the country at large about how. You know the spirit of Japan has been weakened by Western influences, and how they need to, you know, look back towards the emperor and try to restore the the might and glory of Japan as it was in the in the glory days of you know imperial Japan. Um, followed by you know, and after that kind of big climax of him committing this act of uh, you know terrorism or national pride, depending on your perspective. Uh, he he kills himself in sort of a ceremonial style, um, and the the movie does a great job of like paralleling that with the events of his books, which are all sort of very similar to um, what happened in, in his actual life. Not quite a synopsis, but that's as good as I can get without taking like half an hour. <laughs> yeah, you can lay out the lay out the four chapters real quick, just like <laughs> yeah. I don't actually remember exactly what they were. The oh. first one. Uh, so chapter one is about him as a kid, right? And yeah. like him, like discovering like his like sexuality. Then chapter two is um, chapter two is him learning to get get buff, hit, hit up the gym. <laughs> then chapter three was like his weird like relationship with that woman who was like would like but, cut him. But see, that wasn't chapter... that wasn't. But that's the thing, though. That wasn't his life. That was from one of the books. Yeah, right? it's really interesting yeah. actually that you are like framing it, Bryce, in terms of like. His life. Oh, I just I just assumed every book was like something that was related to him. I no, yeah. well, I mean a lot of the stuff in the it's it's a lot. That's the thing, right? Is a lot of the stuff in the books is not stuff that happened to him, right? Like, yeah. uh, but it's but it's all things that kind of tie into his. Each of his novels is an expression of different aspects of his personal philosophy, right? Mm-hmm. So that's why it's hard to just say like, oh, this is what happened in the movie, right? Because they're they're kind of selectively including these moments from his books in yeah, order to yeah. explain different parts of himself. Yeah. 
I, I, I'll step in quickly. So the, the, in the beginning of the film, it highlights and it lays out a chapter structure. There are four chapters, yeah. beauty, art, action, and then the final chapter is epically named Harmony of Pen and Sword, as Chris alluded to earlier. Um, the beauty chapter relates to the book uh, the Temple of the Golden Pavilion, which I, I want to just go through quickly and say, like, which of the books we've read. I have not read that one, but I think both Chris and Leon, you have, right? Correct. Yes. Okay. The second chapter is Art, which is tied to the book Kyoko's House, which I don't think any of us have read because it actually hasn't been translated into English. It was yeah. a book that um, Paul Schrader had, like, I don't know if it's specifically translated just for this film, but it was not released in an English translation, which I think is just very interesting. Um the third chapter is action, which uh, they recreate scenes from the the book uh, Runaway Horses, which is the second entry in Mishima's final work in, uh, in the, the scene in the beginning of the film where he kind of has this manuscript that he's going to deliver to his publisher. That is his Sea of Tetralogy or Sea of Fertility, sea of fertility like yeah. four part book series. And Runaway Horses is the second novel and I think probably the, the best one. Um, I feel comfortable saying that. And I know all three of us have read that. Um, and then the final chapter is the depiction of the final events of his day, and it's kind yeah. of interspliced throughout the the um, the rest of the film. So I just wanted to step in and provide that kind of like structure. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, yep. The each of the chapters definitely like depicts, or sorry, each of the the books that are recreated or the scenes from the books that are recreated kind of like highlight these different aspects of Mishima's persona and or like who he was, but they weren't necessarily like things that really happened to him. Um, the, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I meant like it was very obvious. Like in the first chapter, like there was like a section of him as a little kid, like discovering like, oh, he's like attracted to men, right? And then like the character in the book was also like not wanting to be with the woman. And yes. then, Like in the next mm -hmm. thing, there'd be like, oh, the guy in the story was getting hitting up the gym, and like that was something that he did in real life also. So I'm just yep. like, there are there are parallels between every like events in each each book to his life. It's not necessarily you know like a one for one autobiography, but like. Each book also highlights some aspect of him as a person. Yeah, I yeah. thought that was something pretty interesting about how the movie was laid out, because I think that is a really good insight in that he sort of is the characters he writes about to some extent. And I think the way the movie is structured really intentionally tries to make that comparison with um, with the way it's laid out. Right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. yeah. absolutely. Um, so. I, that kind of go, goes, I think we maybe have exited the brief synopsis, but I want to get to <laughs> our bull or bear section. And Bryce, I actually want you to start this out being as the, not the layman, the everyman, the the non-Mishima reader, um, and just kind of get your initial opinions and thoughts on the film and, and what, what you were bullish on, what were you, what you were bearish on. Yeah, so before I watched this, I like read like a little article just about like his life to kind of get, get my bearing. And I was kind of like confused as to why... Um, there's so much interest around him because like, you know, he ends his life in like kind of like a terrorist sort of like nationalistic, you know, act, which like I don't doesn't doesn't connect with me. Um, so I was kind of like, OK, why is why is this such a big deal? Um, so I was a little uh, bullish in a way. I, I never remember what bull or bear, which is which. Um, I think you mean bearish. So yes. I was a little, I was a little bearish going in because of that, but I was bullish because you know Paul Schrader makes some good movies. I haven't seen all of them, but like Taxi Driver, super good. First Reform, super good. Um, so that was kind of my thought going in, and then um, my first impressions. I guess we'll include those now also. Um, I really liked Chapter One 
and chapter four, but I fell asleep at the beginning of chapter <laughs> oh, three. Oh, oh, my, oh my god, the bet the you fell asleep during Runaway Horses. I mean, like, I mean, like, I paused it, and then, like, when I woke up, I finished watching the movie. Okay, but like, okay. it felt very like the movie felt very disjointed for me because of that. I, I um, wonder why. <laughs> so, like, it's it's a little bit my own fault, but um, they had me for the first chapter and they had me for the last chapter, but I got a little lost, lost in the middle. Um, but I thought all of like the stuff with like how they were framing it in terms of like his life. And the um, the books themselves was super cool. Like I loved, I love, love, loved all of the set design in like the book sections, like mm-hmm. the temple of the golden pavilion. That like that main set, and that one was just like breathtaking. <laughs> um, and there's that shot where like the pavilion like opens up, which was just super, super cool. Um, and then I also like the, the score for this movie was was beyond incredible. Like I feel like it's it's a score that I'm gonna end up listening to just like while I'm working or something because I thought it. It was it was so grandiose and, and really really well done. Um, mm-hmm. So I liked it, but I didn't um, like I wasn't hugely impacted by it. Oh man, okay. Um, Leon, do you want to chime in? Yeah, for sure. So I would say coming in, I was pretty bullish, but I will say um, you know expectation is the root of all heartache. So <laughs> oh, oh no. So given that, I would say that. I think when you're reading Mishima versus the way this was presented visually, it is a lot more disturbing, I would say. A lot of the stuff that happens in these books and definitely, like, you know, in his life. Um, so I would say, like, when you're reading the text, right, Mishima is very poetic, and in your head you have, like, this very, like, grandiose sense of, like, what's going on. Whereas, like, when you actually see a lot of these characters, like, in temple of the golden pavilion for example right they're actually like very disturbing and it hits in a more real way i would say um which is like not necessarily bad right but it's different than what i was expecting um a few other things that come to mind um it takes i think the important pieces out of some of these stories but it does also like leave out a lot of context and it is like chopped together in a way that tries to highlight more of the themes than it does the actual like plot or like series of events, right? And I think that could be a little bit confusing. I would say like, given the very like theater-esque presentation of the books and the fact that it covers so much, to me it seems like of almost sort of like a uh, fan work made by like Paul Schrader, right? It seems like, you know, he was a really big fan of Mishima and that he, you know, made this movie as like, as a way to just like express that. You know? mm-hmm. um, so I would say like, I wouldn't say I'm bearish after seeing it, but definitely I'm less bullish than where I was coming in, right? Mm. All right, Chris, tell me something good. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think it's a super ambitious undertaking, right? Um, I was bullish coming in. I was actually like, this is a movie that I was like, I'm, I'm, I was saving watching it to make sure I watched it under like the perfect circumstances and stuff. Like, I was very excited about watching this movie. Um, and, uh, you know, I think one thing I thought while watching is that like the movie gives absolutely zero affordances to people who are not familiar with the books. 
I was, that's what I was thinking while watching it. Like this isn't this isn't really trying to tell anyone who doesn't already know about Mishima. Yeah. Like about him. Yeah, it's exactly. really about it's really like something for people who have read the books because it doesn't give you any con like like Liam was just saying, it doesn't give you any context at all. Right. Like I kept getting upset when they would switch the next book. So I was like, oh, I was just getting in with like those characters in that story. And yeah. Be like, and it's not trying. It's not trying to tell you the story. It's it's just trying yeah. to highlight. It's like I I know what it was doing, but like I was that's like where I, my head was. At. I was like, oh, this is a really yeah. cool story. Like I'm getting into this. What I was saying is that like it's basically saying like, remember this moment. Like we're gonna tie this moment from the books that you remember from reading it. We're gonna tie it to this greater sort of piece of the narrative arc of his life right so um and i think it did a very good job of that um is the thing like i think it did an excellent job of that i agree with leon that there's something a bit jarring about seeing a presentation of something that you've read especially because like it's it's obviously going to be so much different than the way you imagined it um but that's just you know that's just a natural sort of consequence of any adaptation of written material um you know i i think that uh as Bryce was saying, like aesthetically, I wasn't expecting the movie to be aesthetically so amazing. Um, you know, I wasn't I wasn't ready for that like theater type presentation. Reminded me a lot of like the tragedy of Macbeth. You know, this kind of heightened realism, but still like you know you can see that it's like a stage play. Like at one point you can see like the furniture like sliding back and then like the set changing, which is like a classic like so theater cool. thing. You know, <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, like it, it it's something that like you know it's an extremely ambitious undertaking. Um, it, it was not meant to appeal to people who aren't already like if you weren't already a fan of Mishima or knew who he was like the movie is not trying to tell you that you should be right it's it's literally just like for the it's like a fan service that's like the wrong word but like that's the one that is most applicable like it's, it's like fan service you know it's like yeah, for the people exactly. who are fans of him come and like basically celebrate his writing and his life um and like this exploration of his his ideas. Um, yeah, so that that's like it shows my main problem, which is like, why should I be celebrated and attached to this guy that like ends his life in a terrorist act? So maybe you guys can help explain that to me, but I'll I'll shut up now. <laughs> yeah, I, I think and it's a good that's a good point, Bryce. So I guess just kind of going off of Chris's point, like you you felt that you kind of were missing out on aspects or like meaning from the film because maybe you you were lacking some of the context of the books. I don't think that. I just thought, like, why is why is he such a big deal? Yeah. And, and maybe this will probably... Like, bring I, up I understood they were using this character in this book to show this part of his life, and this okay. character in this book to show this part of his life. That, was, mean, that was super clear. That just, wasn't let me confusing just at all. Let me just jump in to say that the reason why he's such a big deal is because his books are amazing. Like, he's literally one of the greatest writers to ever exist like if if he was you know i think with literature there's this kind of eurocentric view you know if he was an american writer like he would there would be like statues of him in every park <laughs> you know yeah, what i mean he'd like, be like hemming hemingway yes level like like he is a giant like of of like like a literary like like in the pantheon of writers so that's why he's a big deal and like you know i can't sell you on that he's a great writer like you just have to read his books but but that's the reason why like there's such interest is because if you read the way that he writes, it's like magic. You know what I'm saying? Like the guy, the, the words are like a, like a fluid, you know, it's like, they're like paint and he's just like painting this, this canvas yeah. in front of you. It's unlike anything else I've ever read, mm -hmm. you know? Okay. 
I, I, uh... This, this whole kind of, like, imperialist politics still kind of, like, pulled me out, though. Especially, like, they framed that as, like, the beginning and the end of the movie. So it's clearly right. important. And, so, like, there are different, you know, like, I really like the temple of the, the Golden Pavilion and, um... Kyoto's house was it? Kyoko's. Yeah. Like, yeah. I like both of those stories, but that's still kind of like imperialistic, you know. Politics was not something I was, you know, a fan of. Yeah, I I think it's it's like a tricky thing with him because I agree with Chris. Like his writing is amazing, and you know, and he's like he is like one of the best writers I've ever read, right? Um, but at the same time, I also understand what you're saying, Bryce, where it's hard to know pull out like like it's hard to pull out his political views when you're like watching this stuff as well which like yeah if that's something that's like you know bothersome right then yeah like that is like a major part of what he's about right um and that's like a whole interesting discussion in of itself in terms of like how these themes and how the you know, I think there's certain things that are reoccurring in all of his writing, and they like really all tie together, right? Yeah. Um, but when you think of it in less of that abstract way, and you like do the math to like where the some of the stuff leads, it does like ultimately lead to some crazy stuff, right? Well, I, I think you know, if we're gonna talk about this. You know, and it's if this is like we a need deep to get segue. Movie here at some point. But I'm just gonna say that like, look, it's a tricky thing to understand, and the movie is like trying to unravel it, right? The, this is this is I think this is one of the central pro- questions that the movie is trying to answer, right? Yeah. Because Mishima, his politically, he's like an ultra right wing, like hyper nationalist person like that's where his beliefs fall right and i think that the important thing and this is what the movie is trying to explain is not to like try and see the value of those politics because that's not the point right you don't have to agree with those politics it's to understand the reason why he has those beliefs and those beliefs are not motivated in political factors right those beliefs are motivated by this higher more philosophical desire for for concepts like purity right and like unification of art and action and i think that the the right-wing ideology of japan of the time was the political ideology that most aligned with mishima's aesthetic beliefs and aesthetic desires and the things that he wanted to express artistically so i think it's important to like not it's not so much about like, oh, do we agree with his right-wing imperialist beliefs or not? But it's about like, why did he think that way? And I think that's the yeah. part where all the meat of understanding him okay. is, I, is. And I think I that's totally the agree. reason why this movie exists. Yeah. yeah. I have one last point on this, um, which was like something in the movie that came off a little bit hypocritical to me was that um, obviously this is, you know, not the words of Mishima, these are words from the movie, but like, right, his whole thing is like kind of anti like the consumerism growth of Japan and like Western influence, right? That's part of it, not the whole thing. But there's like a part earlier in the movie where like he's like super intent on like getting his words translated to English and like translated to a Western obvious and Western audience. So it just like felt like there's a little like disconnect there in terms of like wanting to be like accepted and wanting to become popular in the West, but at the same time like being against their their yeah, rise kind so, of in Japan. So I think I think that's like a really good point actually. And I think one thing that I think is pretty common in uh, Mishima's books as well 
is that even though a lot of these characters and you know in his life as well the way it's portrayed in this movie even though his characters have this idea of purity or you know ultimate beauty or whatever at the end of the day they're unable to realize it all the way or realizing it all the way means that they just get totally screwed over in real life right and you can see that in you know temple of the golden pavilion you know runaway horses and like even in, in his life the way it's portrayed in the movie yeah. right so it's almost like you know his idea of beauty or purity isn't actually something that can really be you know, obtained long term in reality right yeah. it's a very like ephemeral and very like short-lived thing if it can be achieved at all so. yeah mishima often writes about contradictions and one of the kind of recurring motifs in his novels um and it, it's kind of demonstrated in the film is kind of this conflict between the the like eastern and western like society and the westernization of japan and you even see in the in the opening scene of the film like he lives in kind of like a western style house and when he exits his courtyard, he has like a, a Greek statue, and he's very yeah. heavily influenced by a lot of like Greek art and 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 um and like other writings. And so, yeah, there's there's this like mixture, and I don't think you can really just like bifurcate it so cleanly in that way. Um, what one thing I, kind of going back to the conversation, I hope we can wrap up our the political discussion. But um, <laughs> there's an interview with Paul Schrader from like the late '80s. He's on the the Dick Cavett show. I don't know if you guys also watch this. Um, you can find it on YouTube. But um, it's it's pretty interesting because it's it's Schrader talking a little bit about the production of the film and then also speaking about Mishima himself, and he kind of paints the the final day of his life in an interesting way and in saying that you know Mishima in 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 the end was like he's one a person that's really focused on the you know the heart the, the harmony of of art and action like Chris was saying and how his kind of state insurrection that he tries to stage like was that like it was staged like it was kind of just a backdrop to highlight like his his day and his death and kind of like putting a, a button and like um concluding his life on this like epic moment regardless like of a, whether or not he actually wanted to do that like Schrader seemed to kind of call that into question I think that there were definitely political motivations behind it but he kind of painted it as like oh Mishima maybe just did like detain this general and tried to get the attention of the self-defense force to like kind of make like an epic conclusion to his his like, right. life and his his life's work and that's what like i was saying earlier stage play that's what i was saying yeah. earlier is that the political motivations i think are secondary to the artistic motivations for him yes and i think yep. the political the politics are a way for him to express his artistic ideas most yeah. importantly yeah i and i want to i think we should preface i don't think any of us are like because there, there there can be this like conflation with mishima and i've, I've even you know I've, i have some like friends who are like we're are, like from japan originally and i've spoken with them about mishima and it, i'm like a little hesitant because i don't want to come across as someone that sympathizes with his like political ideology for me it's like always the thematic like yeah. works they're the thematic like components of his writing that are like identify with and like understanding like taking action and and kind of this like purity and beauty aspect um that's what like really resonates with me yeah tying it like back to the way the movie's portrayed i find it super interesting that the first three chapters are stories that he writes about right and then the fourth chapter is literally in a way still like something that he 
this whole like theatrical thing that he invents, but it's like staged in real life, right? So I think mm-hmm. it's interesting that Schrader chooses to like have like the fourth chapter be entirely in reality, where like you know that's where like the harmony happens, right? Um, yeah, it's uh, it was super cool how like all these different chapters were filmed and like produced very distinctly. Um, I actually watched like a like a forty minute like making of documentary after watching the movie. Oh um, wow! Okay. <laughs> yeah. I didn't know that existed. And, it was, it was I, I got a Criterion like free trial and they had a bunch of extra stuff there afterwards so I watched that one um, and they had like the cinematographer the production designer and the um, composer like all giving interviews um, and they, they talked about how the the cinematographer at least was like the, the last day in his life was supposed to be shot in kind of like a fake documentary style um, to make it like seem more real versus like the um, mm-hmm. The kind of like super saturated, colorful um, novel sections, and then like the black and white um, sections in the past, which was supposed to more like kind of remember, yeah. resemble like classic like Japanese um, filmmaking. But I thought it was super cool how they use these three distinct styles to like, you know, showcase the three distinct um, yeah like different stories they were they were showing, and it really helped to keep them them separate in my head while I was watching the movie as well. Yeah. Um, I think in terms of like the use of black and white versus color too, it's like all of the all of like the stories quote unquote right were in color, and all of the um, real life events were in black and white. But except for the the final day in his life. Right. Yeah. Except for the final day. Well, so I think um, that ties into the the whole thing. Right? Yeah, like his his past, like his childhood, was all in black and white, right? The, the his final day was kind of this desaturated just sort of like kind of like like Bryce said like this documentary style kind of look right mm-hmm. and then the 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 uh stories from the books had this like dreamy hazy kind of like uh this really bloomy sort of brightly lit with like very like uh strong uh colors you know, sort of look that's like very visually striking, right? And they each had their own unique aesthetic, right? Like we have, we have uh, for the Temple of the Golden Pavilion, we have an aesthetic that stands out. And then for uh, Ryuko's house, that's what it's called, right? Ryuko's house? Kyoko's house. Kyoko's house, my bad. Kyoko's house. For Kyoko's house, we have like a totally different kind of almost like 80s, like neon sort of aesthetic. Um, it's very, um, the, uh, the production designer said that like that, area was like that's like post-war japan where like japan's yeah. becoming very like influenced by american taste and specific, specifically bad american taste <laughs> yeah. so like they specifically like tried to make it look kind of bad or it still looked striking on, on I mean, screen it but like, it was awesome. supposed to look kind of <laughs> kind of gross as far as like design goes um so which chapter did you guys like enjoy the best oh man uh, I think it's that, a toss up between chapter one and four for me. I can't say yeah. which one, but I I think that in terms of the visual aspect of it, um, I think chapter three, so action when they're d- showing runaway horses, is the most um, visually striking. Uh, we can talk. We'll probably talk about the ending a bit later because I think the ending of this film is like some of the most high tier, like magnificent kind of cinema I've seen. Um, it there the shot specifically where the the group um, Isao is the main character in the story 
and they're they're meeting in this like small room that's like uh, a square and it's like yeah. uh, defined by like shoji screens and then you hear this noise and someone's like was that you and then all the screens like get pulled away and then that was the, awesome the police yeah, yeah the police <laughs> like crash in it's cool it's also during that scene they, they had all the screens just on wires and they just had to time them so that everybody like pulled them at the right exact time to get that effect yeah and then and then in the one of the last scenes in that story um when he goes to murder the baron kurahara i think i can't i can't remember the name exactly yeah, the yeah. one Kurohara. character that that he's seeking to to assassinate um the the guy is sitting like in his living room and there's this like big tapestry behind him and then yeah. The, they, I think that it goes back to the scene and then it's lit from the back so you can actually see through it and during the initial shot you can't tell that that tapestry is see through like at all and then you can mm -hmm. see Isao back there and he pulls out his knife and cuts through it and comes through and like the way they just like crafted that so they, they're displaying this backdrop that looks like 100% like structurally sound and then it gets like just torn it, it, I thought it was like amazing mm. um but yeah, yeah, so I think that that's a standout for me. That was like an assassination straight out of Ghost of Tsushima. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think for me, like one thing about this movie is uh, I really need to like figure out a way to read uh, Kyoko's house because like that was a I, like I wasn't familiar with that story, mm -hmm. um, and it has almost this kind of like the setup like this guy, you know, his mother owns a restaurant and she's you know past due on her loan and in order to to like get her out of the financial trouble he has to basically like give up rights to his life to the this like banker woman who like you know is older than him and kind of has this sort of sort of fetishistic sexual interest in like cutting him it has this like really like david lynch kind of yeah, creepy yeah. feel to it that i was like totally into and you know not being familiar with that story it was like really uh interesting to see um, yeah. And as far as the other two chapters, I mean, he did a great job of uh, adapting those moments from Temple of the Golden Pavilion. Like he, I, he took he happened to take some of the moments from each of those books that were like for me reading them was like the most striking. Like yeah. the idea in the Temple of the Golden Pavilion where, you know, there's a scene where the character like attempts to have sex with a woman, but he he can't do it because every time he, he tries to touch her, he just his mind immediately thinks of the beauty of the pavilion and the temple. Right. So he yeah. can't, he cannot bring himself to actually like do anything with the woman. And they like captured that like perfectly in the movie, you know, like the floating pavilion, it like splits in half and like, it was, it was amazing. And like, um, and then, you know, in runaway horses, obviously like, you know, you have that moment where, um, you know, of course the ending, uh, where he, you know, uh, after killing, uh, Kurohara, he, he kills himself in front of the sunset, but also like the moment where the, uh, you know the moment we already talked about where they're they're plotting and then the uh the room just collapses and all the the cops like rush in that was just like so the bit the bit where like yeah. they all take their oath like on like, yeah. the beach oh, and that yeah. segment was also super oh, cool man. Yeah. yeah 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 one thing I'll I'll say quickly Chris about Kyoko's house um I don't know if you guys read anything more about it after seeing the film but that book in and of itself is also a a book split into four distinct chapters and oh, really? each chapter focuses on a different young man, and apparently, like each of those men is supposed to represent a different aspect of Mishima. Yeah, mm. in, in a way, like you know, I wasn't familiar with uh, Kyoko's house either, and it's totally something that Mishima would like come up with, right? Yeah, but yeah, yeah. For me, like I think that part of the story was like the most interesting, just because it was like 
it was a story like I wasn't familiar with yet, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, like man, like when when she was like cutting into him for the first time yeah. and stuff, like that was so disturbing. I was yeah. like, man, like I can't, I can't look at this, right? Like, <laughs> but it was and, like, it was the same we've time. We've seen some worse stuff here on other essential <laughs> okay. yeah. yeah, that was so like <laughs> hardcore, <laughs> like Mishima like aesthetic though. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, well, yeah. and then later, you know, he takes off his shirt. And he just has like a ton of like bruises and cuts on him. And, and then she says, like, "Your Damn. your body is like a matador." Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. That that uh, chapter as well. I mean, it, I think I don't want to get into like the bodybuilding section of the podcast, but oh, yeah. I do appreciate kind of the emphasis and the the harmony that Mishima writes about between like the like working on your mind and your body, and that chapter really emphasizes that and. It, I, I, specifically, there's a there's a scene where Mishima is talking about how he's like, you know, I was sickly as a child, and but because I attained health through like physical fitness as an adult, I have like a much greater appreciation for like what it means to have a healthy body, and mm-hmm. that I mean, not saying that I'm a pinnacle of health, but I know for me, I'm I'm certainly like I feel more comfortable with like my. Um, physical being now than I did as like a child and that to me just like has a lot had a lot of impact there's also the great line that I I think about and I say this occasionally as a joke but when um the main character in Kyoko's house is like talking to his mom and he's like oh I've added you know two inches to my chest already (laughs) and then he's like a foreigner told or someone told me I had the ass of a foreign sailor (laughs) this is like a great line yeah I think that's another one of those like central Mishima beliefs that like the, this movie does a great job of like weaving throughout the entire story like that the body is is like more than just like you know I think people think of like the body is just like a place where your mind lives but it's actually like an expression of your mind and its contents you know mm-hmm. again like the un- just like there's the unification of the pen and the sword right there's the unification of the mind and the body and the two like working in concert the muscles have to be tight you know, mm. they have to be <laughs> strong in order yeah. for someone to properly be able to express themselves artistically, which is a super interesting idea. Yeah. And I think there's even a scent or there's a there's an expression in that chapter where like the, the body is the greatest expression of, of art, like the greatest exactly. body of art you can produce, um, like being literally like a sculpture. But yes. um, yeah, but there's also like the counterpoints that also get made in the movie, right, where they're like. Oh, like your body's only only gonna last so long. So, like, what's the point in, yeah, in, in that's, that's putting like work into it? That's yeah. like a that's like a theme in like a lot of the stories too, though, because at the end of the day, in like Temple of Golden Pavilion, you know, the main character burns down the temple, right? And it that's like the ultimate expression of beauty in that story, right? So it's like beauty is something ephemeral, ephemeral in like Mishima's like eyes, right? And by destroying it, you can kind of preserve it, at least in in the mind. Um, so, like the pavilion, like the yeah. pavilion will always be beautiful forever because it was destroyed at the peak of its beauty. In a right. similar way, you could say the same thing with Mishima. Like he his he was even though he was forty five when he killed himself, like he was still in like great physical shape, and he will continue to be in that physical shape um, for, forever. I mean, it's, a, because, it's a thing they talk about directly in the in the movie. It's like yeah. you know, he said, like you have to. You have to die at the at your at your peak, or else you'll yeah. die of decay, right? 
Yeah. Which obviously Let me just quickly say I don't agree with any of these ideas. But <laughs> no, I mean it's not interesting. Look, again, this isn't hey, speak like for yourself, guys. <laughs> <laughs> and again, I don't I don't think that like that's like I said, I don't think it's important that like we we, we obviously we're not <laughs> We're not promoting these ideas, right? But they are very interesting ideas. And these are his ideas, right? Like, this is what he's writing about. I I, I feel like, you know, going off on a minor tangent, I feel like there's this resistance nowadays in media to exploring ideas that are not in line with, like, that aren't necessarily, like, widely approved. You know what I'm saying? Like, I think his ideas have value even though there are, we don't have to like agree with them or take them as our own personal philosophies. I think there's value in exploring the ideas, right? Now, should we all go around believing these things now? No, right? But I think it's healthy to live in a climate where, okay, we can talk about these ideas, right? Someone can write about them. He, someone who 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 lives by them, because he lived by these ideas, clearly, right? Yeah. yeah. I, I just I want to make it clear, none of us here agreed with, um, <laughs> you know, ending your life at the peak of your beauty. Oh, no, 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 no. Dude, don't do that. <laughs> yeah, so I, I think that's another interesting thing about, you know, Mishima as well, right? Because he very clearly is, you know, disturbed in a lot of ways, um, or it could be, like, interpreted that way. But, you know, at the same time, he is, like, creating, like, you know, really great stories, right? And how that, like, lines up and, you know, melds together is, like, interesting in of itself i think yeah i mean i think look the the guy obviously took his ideas to their complete logical conclusion right but i think that like you know there's something to be said about like the idea of living truthfully and living in accordance with your beliefs and your values as opposed to like giving in to like this kind of grand compromise and the various forces that the world presses on you to try and meld you into something else into something that fits neatly into the larger pattern you know like i think that there's that in a watered down way which again mishima wouldn't agree with the idea of watering anything down but i think that these i like the there's like a a light version of these ideas which is very useful in everyday life right the extreme version might have you committing acts of terrorism (laughs) yeah i mean even from mishima's perspective though right if you are someone who holds these ideas and takes them to their utmost like conclusion right it is ultimately a futile effort right right for him it's not about it's not about like the results of those things but it's about like it's about like all of the ideas themselves right it's like so for him like i don't think you know and the way it was portrayed in the movie as well like when he gives the speech at the end of the movie yeah it's not taken very seriously by like no. right like they're <laughs> like yelling and they're yelling at him Adam, yeah um and you know it's not like a real attempt so to speak to like restore the emperor right um so so in a way right i think mishima recognizes that trying to act out a lot of these things won't work right yeah. because the world is inherently like corrupt and yeah you know things decay over time right yeah that was something that was interesting about the ending is that like it was presented as like a failure you know like it was kind of pathetic right yeah like he tried to give this speech and like no one listened to him they couldn't even hear him the helicopter flew by that completely drowned out <laughs> his voice they were throwing hats and shoes at him 
right? And then it almost felt like he just kind of gave up and went back inside, right? And I think that's something that, that's I think that was capturing an important aspect of the books is that like in all these books when the characters do their big sign of d- destructive act which sort of affirms their beliefs there is in in the books generally some reflection that occurs where they realize okay this is this kind of turned out to be as as uh, I think Cole said futile right like in Runaway Horses after the main character kills uh Kurohara which is the scene we saw in the movie there's a part where he kind of reflects on how unsatisfying and how it was and how meaningless it felt to do that right yeah and they're kind of going through they kind of go through with their plan you see what Mishima in the ending right he kind of goes through with the suicide not so much as like it's almost just like i have to do it to save face right mm-hmm. it doesn't it doesn't yeah. feel like you're watching someone triumphantly accomplishing their mission right yeah. it almost feels like, like to it. yeah it feels like they're just trying to cover up their embarrassment I, I think there's something to be said too and this this is, is kind of a, a much greater more general theme about like um it's something that i i think about a lot it's like the the thought of doing action and then actually doing the action itself and so i think mishima wrote a lot and maybe fantasized a lot about this kind of ritual suicide um i think that's something that has been really widely publicized and, and he talks about or he like there are aspects of that in his books as well yeah. um but like they the action doing the actual thing maybe never lives up to how you hype it up for yourself in your mind um yeah. and in a way um but but it's still important and maybe mishima is like holding himself to the standard like okay i said i was gonna do this thing i've thought about it for this long i need to do it yeah, um, yeah. and it's but- it's interesting how that like ties into the type of characters that he writes about too like they're all really messed up characters, right? They're all like, you know, you know, not that like stuttering is like an issue, right? But the way it's portrayed, you know, this monk is like pretty messed up. He he can like um, barely have a conversation. Like that's how bad yeah. the the stuttering yeah. is. Yeah. And like, you know, all these characters, they they're not portrayed in like necessarily a good way, right? But mm-hmm. I like I almost feel like you know, Mishima is writing so much about thought and action and unifying these things. And it's something that he's like, I think, personally struggling with as well. And it's like, he himself is a writer, right? So as a writer, I think from his perspective, you're someone who's not really taking action, at least like most of the time, right? So I think he really like sees himself as some of these characters and I think when he writes about these things, it's like his attempt to hype himself up to like get to the point where. Well, you know. Yeah, I, I was action. thinking like I think they discussed he struggled a lot was like, you know, am I having like an impact on society, right? Like as a writer and something like, you know, a long time ago, I'm sure like writers had like a much bigger impact on society than they they do today, and it's probably the same thing, you know, back in the the 50s or 60s, whenever all this was actually happening so that was kind of like his big thing right where he's like he wants to combine his his words and his actions combine well the pen and the sword right it's something that actually is alluded to directly in the movie where i think he says these lines like he talked about how like he was never able to find the sort of purity of expression in action that you can in writing right but he was also never able to find like the he's talked about the hot darkness of action right so I think and I think that it's a conflict that he had and a conflict his characters had, which is where like they have these ideas which are fully formed, right? Let's like take, let's take the Temple of the Golden Pavilion for example, right? That character, he had this concept in his mind of like the beauty of the temple, right? And 
how like the beauty of the temple was almost tragic because like it, it's it, it its permanence will prevent it from remaining beautiful and it needs to therefore be destroyed so it can stay beautiful forever right the character had that idea in their head right but they couldn't properly express it because of their stutter right so the only way that they were able to express that idea is through taking the drastic action of burning down the temple right and i think if you think about mishima right i feel like the conflict, the central conflict of his life is he had these ideas in his head. And despite the fact that he was an amazing writer, he probably felt like he couldn't fully express those ideas in writing. Right. Yeah. And therefore, mm-hmm. it was only extreme action that would allow him to get close enough to the purest expression of his ideas. Right. But of course, from the perspective of an onlooker, it just looks like you're looking at a crazy person. Right. Yeah, yep. and that's like the patheticness of it that we see at the end. Like he just looks like an insane person who's play acting like a kid. You know, yeah, I definitely appreciated how it how it ended like that. It wasn't like glorifying his yeah. his final terrorist action. Like you know, there's kind of like that that give and take of of what he wanted to do and what was he actually was able to achieve. So I think like that kind of idea is definitely something that that leaves you thinking. You know, after the movie, and just kind of thinking about his his life in general and is super super intriguing and super interesting. I think, I mean, I don't know how you guys feel. I think we had like a pretty solid discussion. Do you guys want to get into the last call before we start rating stuff? For sure. Yeah, yeah I have yeah. a couple things I wanted to talk about, mainly from the, the um, like behind the scenes I watched. Uh-huh. Um, so like the production of this movie is super interesting because it's like an American produced movie, but made in Japan. Mm-hmm. Um, like they worked at like the Japanese Toho studio, like they filmed on location in Japan. These Japanese actors, but right, like English, American, like writers, cinematographers and stuff. And then the set designer was also Japanese, but the movie was never released in Japan. Mm. The movie only <laughs> came out in America. And like when they were making it there, like a lot of like they wanted to meet up and like talk to like a lot of Japanese filmmakers and stuff. But like none of them wanted to have anything to do with this production. And like they mentioned in the documentary that they did all like the onset, you know, like kind of like last day scenes, like really early on in the production because as like the production went on and on they were like worried about like protesters and people like stopping them from mm. from filming those scenes um so just that kind of like that disconnect about an american movie about this like japanese icon is very very strange <laughs> like they, they thought like they were like making like mocking him or like they wouldn't really understand what they were they were producing here um I will say, Bryce, that um, Paul Schrader kind of addresses that in the interview I mentioned earlier um, that you can find on YouTube. He talks about this kind of now antiquated idea that the Americans couldn't understand the Japanese and vice versa. Um, well, yeah, that, that's kind of what they said, like what most of the protests were going to be about. Like, why are you making this movie about, you know, a Japanese icon? Yes. And, they, and they, then, they didn't think that Schrader would like understand Mishima. Um, yeah. One other thing is, um, so I saw this at the the Berkeley Art Museum Pacific Film Archive. Um, so I got to like see it like projected like on a big screen, which is really nice. And there was a little preamble before the film, and the person that was doing the preamble was saying how it felt kind of like a contextualization and almost like a um, hey, you know, we know you're about to watch a movie that has all Japanese actors and is set in Japan and is about a Japanese person, but it was written by a white guy and, like, directed <laughs> by a white guy. And and yeah. they, it was, like, a way for them to kind of, like, 
not excuse it, but just like provide context. And so the film was written by Paul Schrader and his brother Leonard. And I believe Leonard Schrader was married to a Japanese woman who I think wrote all yes. of the, the dialogue um, between the characters. So they were like yeah, trying yeah. to almost like, you know, say like, this is okay that you're watching this. Um, and, and Schrader like doesn't speak Japanese and um, he never like learned Japanese for making this movie. So like uh -huh. it was very hard for him like to communicate with like the actors and like the rest <laughs> of the crew. Um, and like the cinematographer John Bailey, he actually like made an effort to learn Japanese and like just like little cool. phrases or whatever. It's like so like he like was like a go between mm. between Schrader and like the cast and crew because Schrader like wouldn't learn learn the language. Yeah, um, I, I think this is like a interesting conversation conversation unto itself, right? But I think it's like you know always tricky if you're trying to portray something that you might not necessarily have that much cultural context for um so it, you know i think it's probably something that's case by case in terms of you know how you approach it or whatever um but you know i think it can be done i think schrader did a good job um i'm not japanese so maybe like people feel differently but i think if it's done with earnestness and with humility right um i don't think there's inherent yeah, I, I totally agree with you, Leon. Yeah, I, I think he did a good job as well. Like, I don't know the whole Mishima story, so I'm not, I'm not one to speak on that. But, like, as far as I could tell, like, the movie was, like, super well done. I just thought it was kind of, like, an interesting history in the production of this. That kind of segues into the point that I want to make uh, for the last call, which is that, like, you know, that that's, like, such a tricky issue. Like, and I think it's one that, like, is something that a lot of people talk about now. With as far as like who has the right to tell a story about what I think it's dangerous because I feel like erecting these walls these like hard walls between cultures and between you know places is like a, a way that it's kind of a regressive idea you know I think mm -hmm. if you think of a lot of the, the progress that's been made in the world has come from the mixing the mix the mixing of cultures and the mixing of ideas you know what i mean i've been reading the book sapiens which talks about like the development of the world as it is now and like the mixing of cultures and ideas through trade you know through through communication is like been the engine of a lot of progress in the world so i get a bit concerned about this idea that like we all need to like go into our respective like boxes and not go outside of them the other, the thing is like it's clear from watching like literally any Paul Schrader movie, you know, we watched the card counter here on the podcast. Obviously we've all seen for first reformed. It's so clear to me that Mishima is like a central influence for Paul Schrader. Every Paul Schrader film I've seen taxi driver card counter first from, they all are telling these Mishima esque stories of these tortured characters who have some kind of central belief or ideology which drives them eventually towards like the self-destructive action in which they realize the ultimate potential of the idea right so like i think that you know paul schrader clearly has so much respect for mishima and is he's so clearly been such a central influence in his own work it makes sense that he'd want to make you know this kind of tribute to his life and i think look from my perspective it seemed like it was respectful it seemed like it was well done it seemed like maybe he didn't learn yeah. japanese but i think he went to great lengths to try and understand who mishima was you know and i feel like that's mm -hmm. a lot more important than just like learning the language you know yeah, it's it's one situation if like you know your entire production is like american and there's like no japanese involvement at all but it's another situation when like you know, like the, the production designer was Japanese and it's also super interesting. This is like her first, the first thing she ever did production mm -hmm. design on for, for a movie. Um, so like super impressive in terms of like those, you know, like 
theatrical sets and all the gorgeous stuff that came out of this but um yeah like it's like they definitely like collaborated right with like the japanese producers and, and cast as well so it wasn't like you know this this bubble of just people over in america making this movie about japan that's that i wouldn't wouldn't really yeah. work with me but like there there was definitely a if they'd taken yeah. like all white actors and like yeah. <laughs> made them look Asian, like then we'd have a problem. But they didn't do that. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, the, the collaborative nature makes makes it makes it okay. I believe like that makes it even better. You know, getting multiple perspectives on on the film. So I think they, they did fine here. I'm just thought it was like an interesting you know background in the production of the movie. Yeah, kind of speaking to that production point. Um, one thing that was also said during the preamble before I saw this film was that. Uh, so like I think you guys probably saw it in the opening credits that both Francis Ford Coppola and George Lucas were executive producers yeah. on this film, uh, which is like, <laughs> it's like a, a huge, like, you know, boon to the actual production. And apparently that's how they were able to, to secure Warner yeah. Brothers to distribute it um, because they previously had turned down anything that George Lucas was tied to before. And then they were wildly successful. And then he's they're like, oh, we have to get in on this. And then the movie just did like horribly. I mean, this, this movie was designed to the, fail um, like the Mishima estate to like sign off yeah. on like allowing this movie to be made. They're like, oh, this is being produced by Francis Ford Coppola and George Lucas. Like you're never going to get a better. Yeah. yeah. They should let this movie than we are right now oh god if george lucas had written this this would be this would be <laughs> yeah. in like a pit somewhere no one it's, would, a, good, it's a good thing that george lucas did not have any involvement in the actual making of the film <laughs> yeah but this is a movie that was designed to fail financially like there's no way this movie was ever going to be successful like this movie is made for like you know a very small group yeah. of people to watch mm. <laughs> like <laughs> I don't know what they thought was going to happen. Like you could put every name of every filmmaker that ever existed in the in the credits as like co-signing on it and it still would have been a failure. Just yeah, it's pretty that. wild, right? Because <laughs> when First Reformed was made, basically my understanding is that Amazon just let Schrader do whatever he wanted and he basically did the same thing, but like you no. Know, he just made a movie with a very like niche audience, right? With like the yeah. same sort of themes and stuff, so Definitely, yeah. like, sort of interesting. Yeah, not all good art has to be, like, a massive box office success. No. That's one thing we can learn Most of it isn't ma massive yeah. box office success. <laughs> Except um, for um, everyone's favorite blockbuster film, Avatar, right? Yeah. Yeah, oh, yeah. Good, good. Yeah, The Last Airbender, the M. Night Shyamalan film. Oh, uh, the blue um, people. Yeah. I thought Avengers 2 was pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> well... Oh well, yeah, that segues to my pick for next. No. Oh God. <laughs> anyway, but, but we have to get into ratings first. So, um, Leon, since you're our special guest, I figured you'd and your your rating actually doesn't count at all toward the aggregate score for this film. <laughs> oh, um, I thanks, figured we we let you start. No, that's how we that's how we play it here. That's how it's worked <laughs> in the past. So it's not just you. <laughs> I see. Um, I wanted to make one additional comment on like oh, the please. last call thing. Um, we didn't dive into it too much, but I think one thing to call out is. I guess you would say like the sexual themes in um, the movie and how, you know, Mishima's you know, sexual preferences um, were seen like during his time, right? And I think it's interesting how he portrays, you know, the sexual desires of like all these other different characters, right? And it's always like sort of um, taken in like a dark or twisted way. Um, yeah. So I think it's just like a interesting thing. Um, so just like one thing to call out. Um, yeah. So in terms of ratings, um, so out of five, um, I guess I would give it a four. Um, I think 
the big thing for me is just that when you actually like read some of the books it's hard to like condense all the things that make those books really great into a movie and it's especially hard when you're trying to cover four different stories or i guess three different stories as well as you know this auto or this uh biographical part of it as well um but you know it is very good um i would say it is like it does come off as like sort of like a fan work kind of thing um but yeah i'll leave it at that okay bryce you want to weigh in yeah so i thought um i thought i did think it was a really good movie it's a very unique way to do this story right like showing the the stage productions almost of, of his past work and kind of splicing everything together um you know it's not a linear he was born this day then he wrote these books then he did this um this is like a much more engaging interesting way to tell the story of this man's life you know than other ways that it could have been done um you know, I thought like all the acting was phenomenal. I did, I did fall asleep, but I think that's just more because I was tired than <laughs> I wasn't interested in the movie. Um, but then at the same time, you know, I kind of was like, I, I didn't get like a very strong emotional connection to him, to Mishima, just because like I didn't quite agree with a lot of his, his politics or a lot of the ideas that he was trying to express in his work. So that kind of pulled it back for me. But um, the production was super good. Um, so I'm going to give it... Three and a half stars. It, it was very close to four for me. I, I was having a hard time between three and a half and four. Well, hopefully that doesn't affect me getting on the board, Bryce. We'll see. <laughs> um, but anyway, no. So, I mean, I, I picked this film, obviously. I watched this the f- for the first time a couple months ago. And at, at the time, I gave it um, four and a half stars. I think it was very close to achieving the, that five-star status. But I, I needed to, to rewatch it again. And I think getting to see this on the big screen having actually a little more context um, as well, because I had read Confessions of a Mask, which is another, which actually is the first book that Mishima had ever published. Um, uh, having read that in between my first and second watching this, I think I agree with your points that you guys have made about how this film really is like kind of designed or meant for people that have read Mishima or at least are familiar with him in, to a certain extent. And for me, like, thankfully, that that is me, that is Chris, and that is it is Leon. And I think that the the film itself does like an excellent job portraying and handling this this like really weighty material that you know Mishima has has a whole body of work dedicated to, and is able to pick these like select moments, like Chris was saying, from each of these books that like you remember very well, and it puts them on screen in a very like in a very effective way. Um, the cinematography is excellent. The score enhances the film uh, incredibly well, and just like it's it, it's excellent overall, and it's also like stylish along with it, like having these distinct styles for each of the three books that are that are depicted. So I I, I can't leave this episode of the podcast without giving this film five stars. Wow, I just wanted five to see the courtroom scene. Yeah, that's true. I I wanted to see that scene too. It'd be hard um, if it. If they oh man. That. If, yeah. if I had, like, read some of his books and was more familiar, I'm sure I would have been, like, four and a half, five. But since I was, like, a bit lost, that's kind of what yeah. brings me down as a non-Mishima super fan. Yeah, the first episode <laughs> but, of Essential Reading, we'll just discuss which Mishima books you should read. Leon, we, we did get the uh, torture me like you torture the reds moment. They didn't say reds. They yeah, that's true. censored it a bit. But he did, he did get that moment where he asked to be tortured, which is one of the, like, yeah. iconic moments from Runaway Horses. They didn't um, say reds. They didn't say yeah. reds. 
Yeah, that yeah. would have given it an extra half half star if they'd said reds. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, for me, like you know, like I said before, it's a very ambitious quest, right? Because this would have been very easy to just tell as a straight biopic. Had but the problem is, had you done that, it wouldn't. It would have lost. I mean, so much of Mishima is expressed in his books that you couldn't tell a straight biopic. You had to weave in his stories. You know, because those stories are, they're not just made up stories, right? Like, they're literally like his stories, you know? And I think there's, I can't think of an author whose work is more connected to who they are as a person than Mishima. So, like, this was the right way to do it, I feel like. And, but again, it's a hard thing to do, and especially to do in only two hours. I mean, this could have easily been a three, three and a half hour movie. And I think it would have been totally justified. Um, You know, uh, so it, it managed to weave carefully together. Mishima's life and critical moments from his novels to paint this like this picture of the man and and the times he lived in you know jaw-dropping uh cinematography and you know production design which enabled like this like even though it was a kind of a small scale it enabled us to kind of reach like uh, it, it, it gave us a really like clear expression of some of the concepts in the in the novel like visually you know which these are like kind of abstract sort of ideas that aren't you know, like cleanly expressed, you know? Um, so to be able to like attempt and actually do a pretty good job of like giving us a visual representation of some of the moments from his books is impressive. I mean, it, it's something that like, you know, it's scary, right? Like I, I can't, I can imagine, you know, we talked about how they were afraid filming this movie. Like it's scary. Cause like, you know, this is someone who is a very well-respected author. This is a director who's not from that culture, and he's, you know, being bold enough to say, "I'm going to make a movie about one of the greatest figures from a different country that I'm not from and not familiar with," um, but doing it with a lot of respect for who that person is. You know, I think he did a great job. I agree with Cole. This is a five-star movie. Oh, yes. <laughs> I'm. <laughs> my first non-retroactive board pick. <laughs> oh, man. Well, yeah. that puts it at us at 13 and a half stars. Yeah, carry um, the seven. We got 13.5. Let me, let, what would be the weighted yeah, average? I'll give it. I'll give it. I'm going to go up to four. I'm going to go up to four. No, oh. you can't do that. Oh. Well, no, like, the, the episode hasn't ended. Uh, Hang on. Let, let's, let's say. Wait. So. We would still it just be, makes it more approved. <laughs> yes, more approved. We would still be on the board if we factored in Leon's score and then divided it by the four members of the podcast today instead think, of the usual. I, I, I think the narrative of the podcast is better if Bryce gives it a three and a half. I, I think when someone is a special guest on the podcast, they're allowed to swap out somebody else's score for. <laughs> yeah, the we can take the max. Of, I'll, yeah, I'll right. swap out Chris's score for Mike. <laughs> we're getting we're getting into the essential viewing metagame now. <laughs> um, well, I guess that that was our discussion of um, Mishima, A Life in Four Chapters. Bryce, you want to tell us what we're going to be watching next week? It's your pick. Okay, so for this week, I've been a little bit sick of not getting on the board um, in terms of in terms of my picks versus your guys' picks. So I'm going to go with a movie that, that I have seen, which is kind of incredible that neither Chris or Cole have seen this one. It's one of the all-time classic best movies of all time. <laughs> we're going to be watching <laughs> Citizen Kane. Oh man, it's probably Orson the Wells, definition right? of essential viewing. I, all I know is Xanadu, right? Rosebud. Rose. Well, but the, the oh, he's from uh, Orson Xanadu Wells? is like his like estate. The, yes, the, but the that, famous that, word is Rosebud. Yes, yes that, well, that's what I was. Gonna, that's what I was saying. That's the only thing I knew. Also, Orson Welles is from Wisconsin. 
Oh, really? Yes. I didn't know, I didn't know awesome. that. The movie's available on HBO as well, so easy okay. to easy for everyone out there to watch. All right. Well, uh, you heard it here. We're going to be going back with one of the the gr- all-time greatest films of all time, as Bryce said. <laughs> um, Citizen if I'm Kane. Not on well, the we board don't know that yet. This week, we yeah. don't know that yet. <laughs> the podcast yeah. is canceled. We, we will decide. Leon, have you seen Citizen Kane before? I have not. Okay, well, maybe maybe in the future, or you can you can uh, tell us your thoughts off mic if you ever watch it. But for sure. um, thank you, Leon, for joining us today on Essential Viewing as our second special guest. It was a pleasure having you. Thanks for um, having me on. It was a lot of fun. Th- thank you to the audience for listening to our kind of lengthy discussion on Mishima, a life in four chapters, and get ready to watch Citizen Kane for next week's episode. I'm, I'm finally going to get on the board, guys. <laughs> finally. Uh, I've been your host today, Cole Bielan, joined by... Christian Cuevas. Bryce Kramer, and Leon Din. Thank you all for listening. Um, Just kind of like the production design and score I mentioned before were both like outstanding. I thought it's a very unique and cool way to do a a biopic, right? Kind of like showing how these... A, A what? What? A biopic. <laughs> a biopic. <laughs> For those listening at home, Bryce is saying the word biopic. Uh-huh. Leon, where do you weigh in on this debate? Real quick. Really I've, fast. I've heard both. I've heard both. No, no, what, you, what do you say? What do, what you, do you say? say? I, my vocabulary is very small, so I don't know. <laughs> so he, he's, he's refusing to weigh in. Okay, anyways. What? <laughs>